Let's pray. Lord, want to just thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to preach your word. I am too filthy, Lord, to preach your word, but because of your grace and mercy, you've called me to do this, Lord, and I am grateful. And Lord, I ask you, Lord, that me being grateful that I would decrease so that you may increase, that you would use me as a mouthpiece for your word. And Lord, we also do ask you, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to your word, Lord, not to my word, but to your word, Lord. In the name of Lord, we pray and we thank you. Amen. Um, one thing, I, I've shared this many times uh, when I give uh, RUF reports uh, about South Carolina State, and one thing that I have shared is that when we first got back on campus after COVID, we met with many people, and all of them couldn't really say, but they were saying, we need, because me and Pastor JP got on campus and, and they told us, look, we need y'all to be here. We need y'all to be here. And one woman was like, I can't say it, but this campus needs Jesus. We need y'all to be here. I remember talking to uh, Miss Darby. Miss Darby um, is a woman who works at the police station. And she sort of runs it. And I remember me telling her that I need a parking decal because when you park on campus, they will ticket you. And the ticket is not small. So, I and, and I went to her. And we, we're, we're, we've already spoken to her about what is needed on campus. And she said the same thing. She said, this campus needs Christ. This campus needs a savior. And... I remember going back to her and saying, hey, hey, Ms. Darby, remember me? She's like, yeah, I remember you. And I said, look, I need to get a parking decal. They told me to come to you. I don't know how much they cost because these parking decals cost about $200. They're pretty expensive. And I remember her, as I'm talking, she sort of gets up, turns around, gets a decal and say, here. She gives me one for free because she knows and recognizes a need for a savior within these students. She gave me one this year too. But there are many other stories. There was a one young, a one woman named, uh, um, I, I got to say her name because she's a wonderful person. Her name is Miss Huggins. If you ever come on South Carolina State campus, ask for Miss Linda Huggins and just talk with her. A wonderful woman, a jewel, and please pray for her. Her name is Linda Huggins. Write her name down and pray for her. Because she deals a lot with the student affairs and the students come to her with issues and problems. And she's told me so many stories about how students have come, young leaders have come and were pregnant. People who have come and they've had drug problems. And a lot of these things resulted out of COVID being a void in a lot of students' lives who were just struggling with being on campus and nothing to do. Last year had to be one of the hardest years on campus. There's a couple of students who died. Uh, one student uh, was actually brain dead because they were mixing drugs and mixing drinks. And I say all this to tell you that there is a need for a savior. And these students are reaching out for something. 
the administration on campus know, and they can't say it because they work for a state-funded school, but they want to say it so bad, there's a need for a savior. There's a young lady, uh, I can't say her name because I didn't ask her to, but I said anybody else's name, I might get in trouble. I'll live, I'll be all right. I'm using her name in, in good ways so they might like that. So another young lady, she gave her life to the Lord when we first started our college ministry. If you know anything about me, a lot of my college uh, activities happen at the students when I meet more students there. And I remember meeting this young lady and extremely intelligent. I mean, these students are extremely intelligent. And I remember, long story short, she sat down with us and she said, I made it through high school. I can't make it through college. I need Christ. I remember her saying that. I need Jesus. And even this year, when we had our ice cream social talking about RUF, she gave her testimony. She said, I stopped living for me and I just surrendered to Christ. That's what she said. Let me ask you a question, Eastbridge. Why do, <laughs> why do you worship God? I mean, think about it. I just want you to think of why do you come to church? Why be part of church functions and organization and offices and events that take up your precious time? Why do we come to meetings where people argue and bicker and you could be home just hanging out, watching TV? For me, probably playing some video games. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Why would you worship Lord when it can be an offense to your family, to your friends, to people at your job? Why do that? Do you do these things out of habit? Out of being self-righteous? Think about it. I, I, or do we do it because we're in constant need of a savior and we have surrendered ourselves to the Lord and we know that others who need a savior, others who need to surrender. We're going to look at this text today and we're going to see why we need a savior and why we should surrender our lives to the God of the universe. We're going to look at Luke 7, 36 through 50. Take your Bibles out. Take your phones out. Luke 7, 36 through 50. I love Luke because at the beginning, it tells us that Luke gives an orderly account of the things that Jesus has done. And it lets us know that these things are historical. This stuff is happening in their time. That's why I call it the best banquet ever. Because when you go to certain events or certain activities, you come home and be like, man, that was the best whatever. That was the best dinner ever. We were all, we always do that because it happens in real time and our time. And we said, man, do you remember when we, the best banquet ever. So Luke 7, 36 through 50, it reads, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom has canceled a larger debt? He said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of God for the people of God. So the points that are in your bulletin, they say say the same thing. I didn't mean to say Christ and Jesus. not two different people. It's the same person. So those points we're going to come back to in the application. Okay? So let's look at the text. Keep your, keep your Bible open. Let's look at this text. So when you look at verse 36, Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house to eat with him. Now, we don't know why, but according to how the other Pharisees have responded to him in the gospel, we can only speculate that it isn't for the right reason. Despite of this, the scripture said that he was invited to recline at the table. So historically, when you hear recline at the table, this is more than just a dinner. It's something bigger. It's not I'm going to come to your house, we're going to fire up the barbecue and hang. It wasn't like that. This, the, the Pharisee went to the servant and said, go get the good china out of grandmama's, uh, grandmama's case. We want to use the best china. Get everything. This, when you hear recline at the table, it was a banquet. This wasn't some simple dinner. This was something huge. And at these banquets, what would happen is the Pharisees or whoever's having it could invite their friends. And most likely this Pharisee invited prestigious Jews and other Pharisees to this banquet. Now, if you weren't invited, you could come in the house. You couldn't, you probably couldn't eat. But you could come into the house, stand against the wall, and listen. And hear these men talk about the law and philosophy and, and, and godly things. And they're talking about the news and CNN and all what's going on. And they're getting deep. And they're eating. And people who couldn't come in, they could look through the window. And so Jesus is invited here to recline at this banquet. And you can imagine all the people who were there. Probably uptight people. I don't know. I wasn't there. I'll ask Jesus when I get to heaven. But verse 37 tells us 
that a woman of the city who was a sinner came to this banquet when she heard that Jesus was reclining at the table. Now, the Bible doesn't say what her sin was, but we will learn that they were many. Most lean towards uh, that she was a prostitute simply because of the value of the alabaster box. But this woman enters Simon's house and interrupts the banquet. And verse 34 lets us says that she was standing behind him. You can imagine this woman who most likely everybody knew that woman. And you can imagine the music stopped. The DJ stopped. Everybody stopped. Whoa, somebody dropped their plate. Because this woman of the city has come in. Can you imagine the tension? Can you imagine everybody feeling uncomfortable? The awkwardness of this situation that this woman, who most likely was a Gentile woman, comes in to a Pharisee's house at a banquet? Some of us don't even want our cousin to come by. And the Bible says that she came and stood behind Jesus because if he's reclining at the table, his feet are out behind him, right? So she comes in and she's weeping and crying so much that is literally wetting Jesus' feet. You ever cry so much that your tears are just actually all over the place? We've cried like that sometime in our life. Men and women, guys, we ain't, we're not above crying because we cry too, probably more than women. Okay. But the Bible says she was crying and weeping and wetting Jesus's feet. And she gets out and she wipes her hair with their feet and begins to kiss his feet. She is humiliating herself in front of all these people. She breaks every cultural taboo, custom, and norm. Let me explain this alabaster box. An alabaster box was made of like a nice precious stone. People believe that that the vase itself was more valuable than than the perfume that's inside of it. Not only that, many believe that if you open it, you can only open it once. Otherwise, the smell of the perfume and, 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 and the purity of it will go out. So you had to use it only once. So this woman who alabaster represents her entire being, all of who she is, she uses all of who she is, everything that is valued within her, this, she breaks open this alabaster and uses the entire thing on Jesus' feet. She surrenders herself completely, humiliates herself completely just to be at the feet of Jesus. In front of all these people, she's already most likely a humiliation in the community. And she humiliated herself even more to be at the feet of Jesus. She surrendered all of who she was to be where Jesus was. Even if it meant these Jews These men dragged her out and said, get out of here. You're unclean and you're dirty. Even at that, she did that. Again, imagine the tension in the room. But while there's tension in the room, the entire room smells like this ointment. 
Somebody in the back probably said, man, I know this, I, I know this is awkward, but that perfume smells good. Somebody probably had to say, I don't know. But when you get to verse 39, this is where the, you, you, you begin to see where in the story the woman's motivation for why she does what she does. And then we begin to see the motivation of the Pharisee. Look at verse 39. The Bible says Simon said to himself. Most likely he was like, man, let me tell you, you know. He said to himself, the Bible said, that if this man were a prophet, he would have known who, what sort of woman this is who's touching him, who was a sinner. Jesus being a prophet, knows what he is saying. And he knows exactly what Simon is saying. And at beginning at 40, Jesus tells him a story of two people who owed debt to a moneylender. Somebody owed Bank of America $500. Somebody owed Sally Mae 50 I remember I had Sally Mae, but I'm clear with them. I was so good that day. When they called me and said, your debt is clear, I'm like, woo. Sally May, somebody owed Sally May $50, somebody owed Bank of America $500. Now they both owed money and they both couldn't pay despite of the amount they both were in debt. They both couldn't pay and the debtor and the one, the money lender, which most likely would not happen today, Bank of America, and especially Sally May, their debts were forgiven. Their debts were canceled. This story is about the woman and Simon. Jesus is pointing the illustration to both of them. Then in verse 42, he asked Simon, which one will love him more? And I really love this because in verse 43, Simon being, what we'll learn, a self-righteous man says, I suppose it's the one with the greater. Are you serious? You that self-righteous? I mean, I know I can get like that too. I'm not saying we're better, but the Bible wants to show you the hearts of these Pharisees and maybe our hearts. I suppose the one who has it, you know which one it was. Stop trying to act bigger from your friends at this banquet. I suppose the one with the greater debt. Simon said this, and we're going to find out why by saying the story that Jesus shared showed both lenders a debt. And again, despite of the degree of both, uh, despite of the degree, they both owed. They both couldn't pay. They both had sin. They both need a savior. They both are in need of a savior. But Simon doesn't feel that way. Simon doesn't feel he needs a savior, does he? He doesn't feel, he, he either doesn't feel like he has any debt Or he probably claims he might have a little debt, but not as much as this woman, though. She got more debt than me. I'm a little bit better than her. You would never find me on the ground doing that. My standard's a little bit higher. I'm a little bit better than that person. We do that, guys. Sometimes we do that consciously and subconsciously. I'm a little better than that mother or that father. Look at that guy in the corner. I'm a little bit better than him. Look at that children running around the store. Man, I'm not that kind of father. I'm not that kind of mother. I got my kids under control. Right. That's what we do. Right? 
But see, he was, but, but, but see, the, like most Pharisees, their self-righteous is the moral compass. But see, this woman, this woman knows her debt is great. She knows the weight of her sin. She knows she owes. She needs a savior and she wants Jesus. And because of that, she surrenders herself because of the weight of her sin. Now, how do I know this about both of them? It's because the posture towards Jesus. Starting at 44, I, I like this. He, he, he turns towards this woman, but talks to Simon. That's kind of cool. Like, you can imagine Jesus looking at this woman, but talking to Simon. And he tells Simon, I mean, he tells this woman, but he's talking to, he looks at the woman, but is talking to Simon. And you can imagine the love and the mercy and the goodness in Jesus' eyes as she's looking at this woman whose eyes are filled with tears. In those days, if you were to be a proper host, you would, somebody would come into your house from the heat of the day, they would give you oil. But you know how you cut the grass and you come in and smell like grass? Or my mom used to say, don't, don't, y'all smell like outside. You would come and smell like outside and they would put oil or ointment on your head so that you can feel, so you can freshen up. Also, in those days, they didn't have Nikes. They didn't have any Reeboks that cover your shoes or socks. They had sandals and the dirt and, and everything that was on the ground would come in between your toes and your feet would be dirty and crusty. And nasty. They would have a basin. They would have a servant to wash your feet. Come on in. Hey, let me wash that feet. Let me get, let me get you cleaned up a little bit. Let me get let me let me get between those toes. For you. Let me clean that up. Not only that, they would give you a kiss. Come on, welcome in. Hey, it's good to see you. How you doing? Hey, kiss. Hey, I was going. Now we might not do that today. You know, if you try to give me, oh, but I'm just kidding. But that's how they greeted one another, right? Welcoming. Come on in. Have a seat. And get some oil. Clean his feet. Welcome him. Welcome him or her. But you can imagine, because of Simon's heart, but you can imagine, again, this is a formal dinner. Formal. Somebody, somebody walking around with their tuxedo. But imagine. Jesus is at a former dinner, smelling like outside. His feet are dirty, and he was not welcomed. He's the only one not clean. Nobody, he wasn't welcomed. Can you imagine going to an event where nobody welcomes you? Nobody cleaned your feet? He's sitting there dirty at a formal event that he was invited to. But this woman who surrendered herself, saw what Jesus looked like and said, let me clean your feet with with my tears, with me surrendering. I'm going to welcome you. I kiss your feet. Let me put this ointment on your head. And she had the good ointment, not that great value ointment you get from Walmart when you want to save money. You try to get the good, I'm not going to lie, sometimes I get that great value, but sometimes when you want to get the good stuff, you got to spend some money. 
if I'm going to get some cereal, I'm going to get that cinnamon toast crunch. I'm not going to get the, the great value crunch O's kind of, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. I want to get the good stuff. She gave Jesus the good stuff. She gave Jesus the good stuff. She went to Trader Joe's for that. This woman's posture towards Jesus teaches us something. That she knew the weight of her sin. She knew she had a greater debt. And she rendered her, surrendered herself to him. In verse 47, he tells Simon that at the result of the forgiveness, this, this, woman's, this woman's many sins, because of, excuse me, at the result of this forgiveness, this woman loves Christ more. And the result of the one who's forgiven little loves Christ little. See, Simon loved Christ little. That's why he didn't welcome him. He's not the savior. He's not anybody I would care about. But this woman had the debts. He did too. And that says a lot. Again, Jesus is talking about Simon and this woman and Simon's love is little because he doesn't feel like he needs to be forgiven. He doesn't feel like a need for a savior. He doesn't feel like he needs to surrender. He's doing all these things coming from his self-righteousness. This is why he doesn't understand why this woman is doing this. And we'll come back to verse 48 through 50 in a minute. But I want us to give us some application. So here's where the points come in. First application is give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. Our self-righteousness our piety, being a good student, being a strong worker, our political stance, our general stance of just being a good person. I give to my community. I'm helping the poor. I'm doing all these things. They are not enough to pay the debt that we owe God. It's not enough. It is not enough. I don't care. It is not enough. How do you know? Because you, we can't keep the Ten Commandments. It's not enough. And a perfect God demands perfection. And if that perfection is broken, a perfect God demands judgment, eternal judgment. But sometimes subconsciously, you and me, we feel like our self-righteousness somehow will carry us through the day. And we forget. I know I've done it. And I got to catch myself, oh my gosh, I am not good. As Christians, if we decide to remain in our self-righteousness, a few things will begin to happen. First, you will never truly experience church community because you will always be, you'll be busy comparing yourselves to one another. You'll, you'll just be the one sitting over here gossiping. You will never experience the church community that God wants us to experience. You will never learn to love others because you're always comparing others. Another thing that will begin to happen is that we'll get frustrated and confused because you realize that your self-righteousness is really not enough to carry the weight of your sin. It's a frustrating thing to not know that you can put your sin on Jesus. It's frustrating and confusing and tiring. 
This generation of our young people, they jump from truth to truth to false to false. And one time I asked young, one time I asked the student who has this belief to jump from this to this, this is your truth. I believe that. I, I told him, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of jumping on this and that? I'm, I'm tired just by jumping. I'm tired just now by jumping. I got tired. So to alleviate that frustration, you will jump from one moral standard to another. I'm my, one of my best friend, named Antoine, who lived in Baltimore, and he was part of the National Islam for for a minute. And the National Islam is not the same thing as, as uh, uh, conventional, traditional Islam. It's different. And Antoine says, somebody asked him, why do extremists, extreme uh, uh, Islamic uh, uh, followers commit suicide? He said, I think I know. But this was when he was formed, this was when he was a Muslim. He said, because there is nothing that a Muslim can do to, to, to alleviate their pain and sin. They can pray this way. They can do this. They can do all that. But it doesn't alleviate anything. This is what he said. It doesn't alleviate anything. He said the best that they can do is commit suicide. And even at that, it's not enough. I had a, my, my, when my wife was teaching at a church, church in Charlotte, there was a guy named Jesse. Oh, wonderful man. Jesse was 86 years old. And when my wife was going through the book of John and she said, you need Christ and there's nothing that your righteousness can do. Jesse said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was genuinely confused and frustrated. He said, wait, wait, wait. He cut her off. Wait, didn't God see me put my kids through college? Didn't God see me do all these things? And you're telling me that that's not enough? And my wife said, Jesse, no, it's not. And you can see his whole world crumble in his face. 86 years old. Realized for the first time that his righteousness can't carry him. Can you imagine that? He hasn't heard the gospel. And he's 86 and he finally heard it. Praise be to God, right? That he heard it. But he felt like his entire life, his righteousness could carry him. He didn't give it to Christ. He couldn't, he didn't surrender his life to Christ. But most important thing that will happen to you if you decide to live in your self-righteousness, this is very important. This is key. You will love Christ little. Because Christ isn't the sin of your salvation, he will begin to fade in your rearview mirror. He's no longer the source of your forgiveness. He's no longer the source of salvation. Other things are, and you begin to not know who Jesus is. And when somebody mentions Jesus, and subconsciously you'll say, Jesus who? Because your life isn't centered in him. And that's one thing I told my students, is that RUF, this college ministry, is centered in Jesus. We will always turn to Jesus. And if you don't like it, there's the door. We will always turn to his word and turn to him as the source. And I challenge my students all the time. You can, if they were here, they'll tell you. Mr. Joel always challenging us. And my challenge to them is always to rely on Christ in every situation. And it's hard because they're dealing with self-righteousness. Give it, give 
your sin. Give your sins. Give your sins. Look at the weight of your sin and stop trying to carry it. Give it over to Christ. Give it over. Stop thinking you good because you're not. You're not. If you think you're good, talk to me afterwards. Buddhists, Buddhists, Buddhists look at Exodus 20 and look at, and look at the, the uh, Ten Commandments. We can do that. And if you miss one, according to James, you're a lawbreaker. And you can't do good. You got to give that over to Christ. I can't stress that enough. Second point, give them Jesus. Give them Jesus. Now, what does that mean when I say give them Jesus? Many people... Many people believe that this woman was shown great love to Jesus as a result of something he already did. There's something he already did. She knew Jesus. That's why she said, where is Jesus? He's over there. I'm going over there. I know about Jesus. Otherwise, why would you be there if you have no reason why you're there? There's something that she did. And many people believe this woman's story is in Mark, but Luke, again, Puts it in an orderly section to where maybe this woman has heard Jesus prior to it. The Pharisees' teaching, we learn from the Gospels, kept the Jews and the Gentiles bound to their sin, pain, and suffering. It kept them bound and trapped in their sin. Entrapped in their iniquity. This is why Jesus begins his sermon on the mount with the Beatitudes. Where he says, "Those you can finally be rich in spirit. You can be comforted. You can finally be fed. Jesus saying, you can finally find relief in me. There is a way out and that is through me. He's teaching this. He's forgiving sins. He's healing people. And this woman had to hear the message of Christ, which is the gospel, that her life can be free through him, that her sins can actually be forgiven because the Pharisees believe that if you are messed up, it's because you messed up and there's no way out. Your parents did something wrong. You did something wrong. Well, there's no hope for you. But when Jesus is saying there is forgiveness of sins, there is a way out, there is a way to relieve your soul, that you can put your weight on me, she's hearing this. And this message, what it did to her is it brought her to her knees at the feet of Jesus. It brought her to a place that she's willing to surrender her entire life over to him. Her whole life savings, who she is, her alabaster, all of that. Gave it all to Jesus because she knew that she can be forgiven through him and that she was forgiven. Christ is the only one who can save you and me from sin. So give people who need it Christ. Man, I'm telling you, man, I hate it. I get angry when I hear, no disrespect, pastors on TV not give people Jesus. Instead, they give them 10 steps to do this, 12 steps to do this, prosperity. Man, give them Jesus because they need it. Stop giving people stuff that will keep them bound. Don't be afraid to give them Jesus because if we want people to really be at the feet of Christ, to surrender, we got to give them Christ. 
We got to give him Christ. Don't be scared. Look what's at stake. Don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Somebody comes in and asks you, how was your life so good? Don't tell them because you're a Republican. Don't tell them because you're a Democrat. Don't tell them because I got a good family. Tell them because of Jesus. And if they don't want to hear it, too bad. I mean, you want to love them, but if they want to hear it, you got to tell them, what else can I say? But Jesus, don't give them the Ted talk. Give them the Christ talk. Because that could change your life. Now, I'm not saying that God can't use them. But what I'm saying is there is no name under heaven which one can be saved. We got to give him Christ. We can't be little Pharisees. We can't be the prosperity people who are saying, well, we got to give him. We, we, I, I know what his problem is. He just needs to stop doing this or she just stop doing No. I'm not saying those things can't help. But as a result of us living in this church, living in the world, doing things, the result is because of what Jesus has done. Give him Jesus. And you know what? You know, that helps me every day. Because when I'm sitting in the, in the student center and I get afraid to talk to students who might reject me. I'm a weird 41-year-old man sitting in the corner. I get afraid because they might reject me. And I got to remind myself, Lord, remind me what's at stake. Is that these students are bound to something that might not be you and they're screaming for help. And I'm afraid I got to give them Christ. I got to give them Christ. I don't care if they get mad at me. I, I can't care because when you experience the mercies and the goodness and the love and the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin that he's able to take away your sins simply because he loves you, you want others to know that. You want others to know that even if it means you get rejected. Even if it means your family doesn't want to talk to you no more. That's hard, right? In verse 48, Jesus tells us women that her sins are forgiven. People are surprised. Who is this to forgive sins? It's easy. That's God. That's God reclining at the table, eating that piece of chicken with the dirty feet. That's God. You might ask yourself, how do I know? How do I know that Jesus can really forgive sins? How do I know that he'll forgive me? How do I know that if I give him Jesus, he'll forgive them? Did he really forgive this woman? And let me say this. I've asked many people who were Muslim and other, what is the forgiveness of, how do you forgive sins? What is the forgiveness of, according to your testimony, how can sins be forgiven? And no one can tell me what it is. They can't tell me. I've asked a Muslim guy, how do how you know Allah can save you? Instead of answering the question, he, he, he sort of went around it because he doesn't know. How do you know Jesus can save us? I want you to look at this illustration. I want you to really think about this. When Jesus leaves that banquet, what does he smell like? Somebody's going to say, Jesus... Ooh, where you been? I know that smell, Jesus. You've been someplace you're not supposed to be. Everybody's already saying around town, y'all see how Jesus, that woman touched Jesus' feet? Now, this rabbi who cleans a prophet is unclean. Smelling. Smelling like sin. He takes the scent of 
our sin and place it on him to where he smells like our sin now. And we're over here forgiven. We smell good. We smell like the way God wants us to smell. And Jesus is over here smelling like sin, carrying our perfume, our scent of our sin and our life on him. And that's what happened on the cross, that Jesus carried our sin because something, somebody has to take the weight of this woman's sin. She can't be forgiven unless somebody can take away, take that wage. The wage of sin is death. Somebody has to take that. Jesus Christ is the one who took it on the cross. He took your sin and mine. Why? Because he loves us. He wants us to be in union with him. He wants us to be with him. He wants us, think about this. Jesus left his family and became sin so that you can be part of that family. He wants you to be with him. And with that understanding is that in the world we live in, that people don't forgive, that people don't forgive and whatever without something in return. Jesus is saying, I just love you. I want you to know me. I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want, I want you to love me. I want you to know me. And for that, I'm going to take your smelly perfume of sin and place it on me. But not only that, I'm God. So I'm going to rise again and completely hold it down. Now through me and this woman's sin who's forgiven, go sin no more. A lot of people, I've heard this before, a lot of people believe in the Greek that is the, uh, uh, I think, air is perfect. I'm trying to, I, I, I did okay in Greek, guys. I did all right. But I believe it's like the aorist perfect, or I'm trying to remember, but what it's saying is that it's ongoing. That because of the cross, her, Jesus carries it and it's ongoing. Meaning, once you belong to Jesus, you always belong to Jesus. You always belong to him. You don't have, that's why, that's why he said, you don't, don't go sin no more. You don't gotta do that no more. You don't have to go back there. I got you. Why? Because I resurrected. I defeated death. And now because of me, because of Jesus, we can walk. Because of Jesus, we now surrender ourselves to him because of who he is and what he has done. And so now we know there's a need for a savior because we know what it will do. And so now we go to church, we do these events, we do different things because we surrendered our life to the one who forgave our sins. And we surrender that to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord, for taking on our sin. Thank you, Lord, for taking on our sin when we don't deserve it. We ask you, Lord, that we would surrender all of who we are to you, that we would give all of who we are to you, that you would change our lives and that, and that this new smell, which is your goodness and mercy, can not only stop here, but go out to the community so that others can know about your goodness and mercy. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.